The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Retreaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We've done several stories since Emily Noble's disappearance, speaking with her friends, loved ones, and with those searching for her. Never once did we speak with her husband, Matthew Moore. He did, however, speak with a true crime podcast last summer. The podcast, which shall remain nameless for obvious reasons, was one of significant popularity, a show that Matt had become aware of due to its primary focus on missing persons. He'd heard of podcasts solving cold cases just like we all have. Surely Matt must have figured what better a way to get Emily's name out there. That interview took place in June of 2020. Little did Matt know his attempt to spread the word about his wife Emily's disappearance would eventually turn into a three-part exhaustive series, spanning some 18 months, a series that would inevitably paint him as an abusive, manipulating liar, who was obviously hiding something. What, though, we couldn't be quite sure just yet. One of the most quoted excerpts from the first interview involved Matt Moore's response to the simple question, Can you please describe your wife for our listeners? His response to the question went something like this. I never saw her get on a scale, but she's very small. She's like 100 pounds. She might even be less. She might be 95. She's very, very, very thin, but she's not like druggy thin. She's very healthy. Arms, shoulders, stands perfectly erect, pretty legs, great arms. You know what I mean? She's anatomically, she's a really pretty lady. For her age, she's 52, but she's very small and she would be really easy to see. She has beautiful brown to blackish hair, and she's got beautiful big brown, like, dark eyes. Her complexion is very light. She has freckles. Though Matthew Moore's interview took place in June of 2020, just the month after Emily Noble first went missing, the popular true crime podcast also interviewed several of Emily's closest friends and even family members throughout July and August of that year. That first episode containing Matthew Moore's interview, yet unreleased, would suddenly take on a profound new meaning when, on September 16, 2020, nearly four long months after Emily first disappeared, three women would make a chilling discovery, a discovery that law enforcement and all other search parties up until that point had somehow overlooked. We are searching for Emily Noble. We are in wooded area near her condo, and we do, we, there, there's a person here. Can you tell if it's a male or a female? It looks female. While walking through the woods, an independent search group would come across a set of female remains hanging from a tree. The deceased woman had a 20-inch USB cable tied tightly around her neck. It was attached to a low-hanging tree branch, and the victim was in a kneeling position on the ground. A water bottle was also discovered by her side. The victim appeared to be touching the bottle with their left hand. The right hand was clutching the right ankle. The contents of the water bottle were later tested and found to contain a wine of some 6% alcohol. The yet unidentified individual was also wearing outdoor active apparel, including purple tennis shoes. 
due to the advanced level of decomposition and identification could not be readily made. Emily Noble's friend of over a decade spoke with local media about the discovery. She expressed the unsettling feeling of the unknown, as her and countless others wanted to learn if the remains they had discovered that day in fact belonged to Emily Noble. Maybe the nightmare of not knowing where she is is going to come to an end, but if it is her, it's another, you know, new terrible thing. It's just very surreal to, like, you know, one day your friend is there and then she's gone. All day, too, I keep thinking that if it's not our friend, it's somebody else's loved one. Days later, information from the coroner would be released. Westerville, Ohio, police informed the media of those findings. Today we received word from the coroner's office that Emily Noble's dental records uh, are consistent with the remains that were found off County Line Road last week. Um, Again, they're consistent. Um, The coroner's office has indicated to us that they will be following up with a DNA test for confirmation. As you know, that could take days up to a few weeks uh, to get that confirmation back. But we felt that, uh, you know, with the with the dental records, um, with them being consistent, that we needed to to release this this information. Though an official autopsy and death investigation report had not yet been released, determining Emily Noble's manner and cause of death, officials did confirm that the remains discovered that day, in fact, belonged to 52-year-old Emily Noble. Emily's body was found in the woods, approximately one-half mile east of her condo. Authorities previously claimed to have searched that exact area some three separate times, one of which included a cadaver dog. How they could have possibly missed her remains would soon become a topic of great controversy. Shortly after Emily Noble's remains were first discovered, just days in fact, that first true crime podcast episode was published on September 21st, 2020. While the production was incredibly well-researched, the majority of the nearly 90-minute segment focused almost exclusively on how those closest to Emily suspected Matthew Moore was the one responsible for her disappearance, and now her death. The opinions of many of those interviewed leaned heavily on previous interactions individuals had shared with Matthew Moore, and the overall tone was speculative and driven by an understandably visceral emotional response to the news of Emily Noble's sudden disappearance. After the remains were discovered, an area law enforcement claimed to have previously searched on some three separate occasions, All news surrounding the case suddenly went silent. It wasn't until just over one full year later that the results of Emily Noble's official autopsy and death investigation report were made public. The findings, however sensational, were surprising to few who actually knew Emily Noble and Matthew Moore. Well, Tracy, we just got this copy of the report a couple of hours ago, and it comes from the Montgomery County coroner who did the work on this case for Delaware County. Now, some of the details are just too gruesome to share with you, but what we can tell you is that it confirms what investigators have been telling us, that Emily Noble was beaten before her death. After the results of Emily Noble's autopsy were released, 
traditional media and social media alike were crawling with sensationalized reports of the newly trending death investigation. But the autopsy report never once stated that Emily Noble was, quote, beaten. Instead, it concluded she died the result of multiple injuries of her head and neck, including face and neck fractures. Her remains also still contained a 20-inch USB phone charging cord wrapped around her neck. Due to the advanced level of decomposition, investigators sought out additional assistance from the Ohio State University Skeletal Biological Research Lab. Anthropology professor Dr. Amanda Agnew, along with a graduate student of hers, Angela L. Hardin, completed the report. A separate strangulation expert, Dr. Smock, was also brought in. Using just crime scene photographs and the coroner and anthropology reports, Dr. Smock came to the conclusion that this was a case of staged suicide. But it's also important to note here that Dr. Smock, a so-called strangulation expert, never physically examined the remains, nor did he visit the crime scene. Regardless, this case was now being ruled a homicide, and authorities finally had what they needed to make an arrest, and the only person of interest at that point was who else but the husband, Matthew L. Moore. At just after 9 a.m. on June 17, 2021, a heavily armed SWAT team surrounded his Nissan Altima with their weapons drawn ordering him out of the vehicle. Hands on your feet! Can you see him good? His elbow, I can see him good. Matt, use your left hand and unlock the door. Only your left hand. Put your hands back on your head. Do not move. Yes, sir. Matthew Moore claimed to be on his way to work at the time of his arrest. Where his new place of employment was at the time is unclear. Moments later, reporters arrive on scene. They swarmed the now-alleged murderer, looking for comment while he was being escorted into the back of a police cruiser. Matt, what do you have to say to the family? Is there anything you can say to us? I'm making a mistake. It's a mistake. Why? Why is it a mistake? Did you kill her? What happened? That's that. Matthew Moore was then driven to the police station for booking. Soon after, Westerville police would take to the media, informing the public of the arrest as well as the charges that now lay before Matthew Moore. I'm here to announce that at 9.36 this morning, uh, Matthew L. Moore, Emily's husband, was arrested. Uh, He is currently in custody. He was indicted yesterday by the Delaware County Grand Jury on uh, two different counts of murder under sections A and B of the Higher Vice Code and indicted on felonious assault. Matthew Moore was held on a $2.5 million bond. Upon his arraignment, he would enter a plea of not guilty. The story of the so-called staged suicide had gone viral, making top news around the globe. In the midst of the media frenzy, friends and family of Emily Noble tried to grapple with the idea that she was no longer here, and that according to the news, true crime podcasts, and several other outlets online, Her husband, Matt, may well have had something to do with it. I knew something. I didn't want to know it. I wanted her to be somewhere, ran away or something, but I knew that she wasn't around because that wasn't her. Given the startling revelation of the supposed staged suicide, Matt's pretty legs comment heard in the first episode of the True Crime podcast quickly made national news. 
and his name was the subject of endless headlines, each painting him as the suspicious husband who had murdered his own wife and then staged her suicide. Emily's good friend Celeste, the very same friend who met Matt at Emily's condo the day she was first reported missing, was interviewed by the local news the same day he was arrested. She had also been interviewed previously for that true crime podcast episode. Though her stance had always been that she believed Matt was innocent, she did find it odd that he threw a party for Emily around the one-year anniversary of her disappearance, which also would have been her 53rd birthday. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It just seems um, ironic that he would have a party for Emily, you know, a remembrance party, because it was like right after her, her birthday time frame and disappearance, and yet hide being guilty, possibly. I just hope Emily rests in peace now. That's, that's all. I'm just, and I miss her. I really wish she were here. As news of Matthew Moore's arrest continued spreading like wildfire, his awkward statements describing Emily's, quote, pretty arms and legs, and his alleged refusal to physically participate in any actual search for his wife before her remains were eventually discovered were being equated by many to a subtle de facto confirmation of his guilt. The by then extensive podcast coverage and follow-up episodes and sensationalized news reports, no doubt, held influence over his changing public perception, well before a trial date had even been set. Those who were once on Matthew Moore's side, those who confidently believed him, were no longer. There's no way this is a mistake, like Matt wanted to say. We knew he did this from the beginning. His family, or our family and friends, we just bit our tongue and let the officers do what they needed to do. We knew this was going to be the outcome, that he was going to be arrested. And hopefully it will go follow through and he will serve time in jail, hopefully a lifetime. After Matthew Moore's arrest, the words he had previously used during the True Crime podcast interview highlighting his wife's disappearance suddenly took on an entirely new and eerily foreshadowing meaning. Several local and national news outlets incorporated his words into the headlines of the day, announcing his detainment. Pretty legs, great arms. Westerville man charged with murdering wife describes her in podcast. Matthew Moore went on a podcast to tell his missing wife's story. Police say it was a lie. He pleaded with podcast to feature his missing wife. Now he's charged with her murder. A man who asked for help on a podcast to find his wife ended up being the murderer. All of the salacious and suggestive headlines were published long before Matthew Moore ever faced his day in court. And though he vehemently maintained his innocence from the beginning, in the court of public opinion, he was already as good as guilty. What many viewed before the discovery of Emily Noble's remains as her mumbling and forgetful husband 
was now the supposed mastermind behind her murder. Each apparent misstep along his journey to her eventual discovery, now in retrospect, a carefully executed plan to make it look like he was the caring, grieving husband all along, when he quietly knew the truth. Four months after his arrest for Emily Noble's murder, that podcast published two additional update episodes in November of 2021, again long before more would ever face trial. The episodes included several additional interviews, and like the first, much of the content was based purely on speculation. Emily's friends shared story after story of Matt's potentially abusive behavior and his propensity to separate her further and further from the friends and family she so deeply cared for. There were also theories that were shared, including one that Matthew Moore only participated in the interview with the popular podcast series in the first place so that he could in some way, quote, control the narrative surrounding his missing wife. The inconsistencies in the case were also discussed, including the fact that law enforcement claimed to have searched the very area where Emily's remains had been discovered on three separate occasions. Naturally, that key inconsistency led several of the individuals interviewed to speculate what might help close the gap in the one remaining investigative hole in the case. One theory was that Matthew Moore, the primary person of interest in the case since the beginning, had somehow secreted Emily's body away somewhere and eventually planted it near their home when things eventually cooled down. Another, even more incredible theory was that the three women who were participating in the independent search of the area, the ones who actually discovered Emily Noble's remains, were in some way involved with her disappearance and potentially her murder. There was also broad reflection on how Matthew Moore's initial description of Emily coldly dehumanized her. Speculation that he was drunk or impaired during the interview. Speculation that Emily was planning to leave Matthew right around the time of her disappearance. Speculation that Matthew Moore was selective in who he admitted to the Find Emily Noble Facebook group, again to control the narrative of his missing wife, and speculation surrounding the supposed mysterious circumstances of Matthew's son Joey's suicide, and even the tragic death of his other infant son. But as we have previously discussed, human beings are analytical creatures by design, Our minds identify patterns and establish connections, in some cases, where there exists none. We have an innate tendency to fill in the information gaps, so that things make sense to us. And though much of the speculation shared on the podcast may certainly have proven subjectively destructive or prejudicial to Matthew Moore's eventual chance at a fair trial, there was one glaring detail that simply could not be overlooked, and that had to do with Matthew Moore's own criminal history. He had previously been charged with bringing a firearm into a court building during a tumultuous child custody hearing with his ex-wife, the very same ex-wife who also claimed that he had once strangled her in a manner eerily similar to that which allegedly happened to Emily Noble. The only difference was he stopped the attack against his ex-wife before she lost consciousness. He came over and uh, he did. For some reason, he ended up, yeah putting his hands around my neck and he started choking and uh, he stopped. Matthew Moore's ex-wife Lisa shared with WBNS 10 TV's Brittany Bailey an incident that occurred on January 1st, 2001. The couple had been married just three months at the time 
but the relationship had already deteriorated to the point they were living apart. Lisa shared how his behavior that day was, in her words, uncharacteristically violent, explaining that he never put his hands on her in that way before or since the altercation. And though Matthew Moore was arrested and charged for strangling his ex-wife, that case was later dismissed in court, and he was never convicted of a crime in the matter, despite initial reports that there had actually been other prior incidents of alleged assault. But after hearing about the mysterious circumstances surrounding Emily Noble's death, Matthew's ex-wife, a vigorous supporter of his until the very day of his arrest, began to have doubts as to whether or not he was in fact innocent, wondering if he were actually capable of committing murder, as investigators had suggested with their staged suicide theory. Ever since I found out that the details, I mean, I didn't know the details, once the details were made clear to me, I started to lean toward his guilt. My heart goes out to Emily's family and friends. I just know that no win comes out of this, you know. No, there's no, there's not a win situation. But if he is guilty, then he will pay. He's paying right now, and he will continue to if he is guilty. Emily Noble's family filed a lawsuit against Matthew Moore following his arrest. They motioned to remove him as power of attorney to her estate. Emily signed the durable power of attorney paperwork on May fifteenth, two thousand nineteen roughly a year before she died. Moore would finally go on trial in August of 2022. On the 17th of that month, jurors would hear opening statements. The state would claim that Matthew Moore killed Emily Noble by strangling her and subsequently staging her death as a suicide. We expect during testimony or hear from Dr. Smock that Emily Noble did not die of an incomplete hanging, that the scene itself was not consistent with the injuries he noted, and that his belief is based on the location, the bilateral fractures, that the cause of death of Emily Noble was a manual strangulation. We expect her testimony based on his experiences, dealing with these types of cases, his educational background, why we will be able to make that finding and demonstrate that to you. We also expect Dr. Smock will explain to you that based on the scene, based on the injuries, based on his opinion, this was a staged suicide, something that made to look like a suicide. Again, if you read the end of that book and saw the pictures and saw Miss Noble the way she was, you may think one thing. But when you get a chance to hear about the characters and see the timeline of events and see the injuries and hear all this testimony, the ending is not what it seemed maybe at first glance, but it's far more complicated and far more real than that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we expect that what you'll hear during the testimony as well is that Mr. Moore, from the beginning, was trying to control the situation. That he continued to stage this scene other than the physical scene that you saw or that you'll see occurred in those woods. And... We expect that you'll hear during the testimony that Mr. Moore, the night of the 24th, going into the 
early morning of the 25th, that very important time frame in this case, that between one and four in the morning, he's sending messages to friends. Stating he's taking a sleeping pill and that's probably gonna sleep in. Again, I believe the evidence will demonstrate that from the beginning, Mr. Morris controlling the scene and trying to stage what eventually will be located in those woods. The defense, however, attacked this claim immediately, reminding the jury from the minute opening arguments began of the state prosecution's burden in this case. Members of the jury, the, the evidence will show that the state's theory is based on speculation and inferences. It is not supported by the evidence. And simply members of the jury, their theory doesn't make sense. Now, I know you were listening to the state's opening just as well as I was. And the judge has already told you that our opening statements are, are not evidence. They are just how we believe the evidence will unfold. But I say this, that in my 30-some minutes of listening to the state's argument, I noted that they didn't mention reasonable doubt. That is their burden. Their burden is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we talked about that in voir dire. It's their burden and their burden alone. And the judge has already given you the instructions of law, and he will again, which say, if the state fails to meet their burden, then the only appropriate verdict as to each of the three counts in this case is not guilty. And here's why I mentioned reasonable doubt and that they didn't mention it is because as the judge has told you, and as I talked about in voir dire, reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. And so I want to talk about this morning during my opening statement as to why it doesn't make sense that Matthew Moore, and I'll call him Matt, that Matt killed his wife, Emily, and then staged her suicide. First, members of the jury, the evidence will show there's no physical evidence. It seems a somewhat contradictory claim that the evidence will show that there is no physical evidence. But it's an important distinction to make in this case because the prosecution's entire case was built upon a foundation of what might have happened and who might have done it. You will hear evidence the state will put on, we anticipate, that law enforcement extensively searched the area of 46 Abbey Cross. Not just Westerville Police Departments, but the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations was brought in. A unit whose sole job, members of the jury, is to look for forensics. They're there too. And it's not just the house. And when I say the house, members of the jury, the evidence will show that they searched the entire parameter area. But the evidence will also show that exhaustively and extensively, they searched the Ultima. They searched the Subaru. They searched the attic. With Matt's permission, by the way, did they do all these searches. They searched... The bedding, the sheets that were in Joey's bedroom, where Matt Moore told the police the evidence will show he slept once he got up in the middle of the night and he had to go to the bathroom, he slept in that bedroom. More bedding. They searched the bathroom, and this is why this is important, the evidence will show members of jury, and in particular, what was in 
the hamper in the bathroom because they searched this too. The evidence will show that the clothing in the hamper is the same clothing that Matt Moore and Emily Moore were wearing on her birthday the night before when she's last seen. And so what comes of all these searches, these searches that were made by law enforcement, not just at Westerville Police Department, but also for BCI and I, the house, the cars, the attic, the clothes, the evidence will show you that there's nothing. There's no blood, there's no tissue, there's no fibers, there's nothing. But the evidence will show it wasn't just people that searched all those places that we just went through. It was also cadaver dogs. Crucial testimony revealed that the location Emily's remains were discovered in had not ever actually been searched, not a single time, never mind the three times police had originally claimed. It was also confirmed that the cadaver dogs had never actually entered the woods where Emily's body was later found and had instead only scoured the perimeter. Bloodhounds had entered the woods to the north of Emily's home, however her remains were found to the east in a portion of woods that had never been surveyed. There had been a lapse in communication, despite everyone's best efforts, and Emily's remains were essentially passed by. Also, the neighbor who said he saw Emily walk out of her garage the morning she disappeared later retracted his statement. He took the stand claiming he'd heard an argument between Emily and Matthew coming from inside of Emily's condo nights before, but the defense immediately discredited the witness for conflicting statements to police, as well as backtracking, referring to it as, quote, unreliable testimony. In the days that followed, jurors would hear testimony from Emily's friends, presented by the state. One friend raised concerns about bruises she'd seen on Emily's arms during one of the last occasions they'd seen each other. The prosecution also presented several text messages between the couple regarding Matt's apparent drinking problem and their possibly failing marriage. I'm not wearing my wedding ring. We won't be able to talk tonight because you've been drinking. I want to know if you start on vodka before I get home. I can't watch that again. Okay, why? Does it bother you? Am I mean? No. Unintelligible. I started drinking at like 11 a.m. yesterday, and I drank way too much. I'm going to start cooking at 5. Do you mind if I have a drink when I start cooking? And I promise not to get hammered. Okay, I hid most of your vodka. Thanks. I'm going to get it together soon. I just need to let this sadness thing run its course. It won't be much longer. You have to stay positive. Well, you're afraid to talk. It's difficult to impossible to talk with you when you have vodka brain. That is an excuse. You are afraid to be confronted with things you don't agree with. Your intellect is shallow. The preceding text exchange occurred in November of 2019. The state was sure to harp on Matthew Moore's unemployment as well suggesting that money and Emily's estate may have influenced a potential motive. However, the defense countered by entering Emily's current bank statements into evidence, which reported roughly $90,000 at the time of her death. Emily also had a life insurance policy, but Matthew Moore was never listed as a beneficiary. Moore's defense attorney rebutted the claims, mentioning his inheritance of nearly $400,000 that he gained when his mother passed away thus disputing any evidence tied to a potential financial motive to murder his wife Emily. The defense ultimately shut down any and all arguments brought on by the state. Moore's attorney provided the courts with evidence suggesting that Emily Noble lived a traumatic life, 
long before her stepson Joey passed away. They laid out her sad personal history that was plagued with death, suicide, and overall loss that Emily had endured throughout her adult life. In the 1990s, one of her best friends died from AIDS. Then in 2011, Emily's first husband committed suicide as a result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In 2015, Emily's mother died in a car crash. The following year, in 2016, Emily's father had a horrible accident where he hit his head, causing trauma to his brain. He had never been the same since. And in 2019, Emily's stepson hangs himself with a cable in a manner eerily similar to her own death just one year later. The defense focused on Emily's depression. Emily spoke about ending her life to her husband on more than one occasion, and the defense indicated to the jury that the two were clearly suffering emotionally, both as individuals and together as a couple. Matthew Moore's defense team continued presenting scenarios providing reasonable doubt, time and time again, suggesting that Emily Noble's death could well have been a suicide. Of course, the autopsy report would be a major focus, including the suppositions made by the strangulation expert hired by the state, who reported Emily's death the result of a homicide. The anthropology report stated that there were four fractures to Emily's neck, the hyoid bone specifically, which is a U-shaped bone at the base of the mandible. The initial anthropology report also states that there was a fracture in Emily's nasal cavity. A portion of the hyoid bone was also missing when Emily's remains were brought in for examination. The defense also pointed out that some of Emily's toe bones were also missing, and several animal bones had been mixed in with her remains. These were all possible results of Emily's body having been in the elements for well over four months. The prosecution argued that the fractures discovered were homicidal in nature, coming from the result of manual strangulation. But the defense attacked Dr. Agnew's credibility, pointing out the Ohio State Anthropology professor's lack of expertise in the criminal field. On cross-examination, Dr. Agnew ultimately admitted that Emily's nasal bone was indeed not fractured at all, but instead was deformed. Moore's lead defense attorney, Diane Manashi, called her expert witness, Dr. Heather Garvin, professor of anatomy at Des Moines Medical University, to the stand. Her analysis concluded that hanging should not be ruled out as Emily's potential cause of death, and that the deformities to Emily's nasal bone happened weeks, if not months, before she died. On day six of the trial, the judge challenged the state's claims of a staged suicide by asking, quote, If the crime did not occur in the home, where did it occur? The state ultimately responded by expressing that they didn't know. Day 7, the final day of the trial, opened with this outburst from prosecutor Mark Sleeper, upset that his colleague Melissa Schiffel was not present and that they'd be moving forward without her. I'm sorry, but I would object to going forward anyway right now without the elected county prosecutor who's on this case. But she chose not to be here. That's not accurate, Judge. Okay, we were, I, we had, okay. your objection's noted. We had a phone status conference two weeks ago in which Ms. Schiffel... Your objection is noted. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to participate in this proceeding without the elected county prosecutor. I think this is a sham that you're going forward. When you, the court was... You're going to sit here. You're going to sit here. I, you, 
were told about her unavailability and specifically told her on the phone not to cancel that appointment, that it wouldn't be a problem. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to be here for the decision, that's your business. Well, Your Honor, I think this is outrageous you're going forward without the prosecutor. Co-prosecutor Mark Sleeper then walked out of the courtroom. The state eventually laid out their so-called complete theory for the first time. That theory was that Matthew Moore followed his wife into the woods while she was on her hike. He then killed her and staged the scene to look like a suicide. They also noted that there was an apparent three-hour window the evening of May 24th where Matt Moore would have had the opportunity to do so. Despite the defense's demonstration, that Matthew Moore was engaging in near-constant use of his cell phone during that time frame, something he was forthright about with detectives from the very beginning. Defense attorney Diane Manashi would even go on record to say that something nefarious could have happened to Emily. However, it simply could not be proven that Matthew Moore was on the end of any such possible occurrence. Just as law enforcement and the state's prosecution had hired their own experts to uphold the so-called staged suicide theory, the defense hired a biomechanical engineering expert who actually tested the tree branch that Emily Noble's remains were found hanging from by conducting five separate tests with a crash test dummy of her approximate weight. All five tests revealed that much to the dismay of the prosecution and many of those who had previously personally seen the branch for themselves and believed there was no way it could possibly sustain her weight during a hanging. The branch never once failed in any of the tests, and neither did the USB cord. Once again, it seemed that every single hypothetical scenario advanced by the prosecution was systematically broken down and deconstructed by the defense, creating reasonable doubt at every juncture. In the end, the jury agreed. They decided that the state failed to meet the burden of proof that would constitute a murder conviction for Matthew Moore. The verdict was not guilty on all counts. Matthew Moore was seen bursting into tears, emotionally breaking down while mouthing the words, Thank you, after the verdict was read aloud in court. Before formally eliminating Matthew Moore's bond and releasing him from custody, the judge would say the following aloud to the court. Circumstantial evidence is the cornerstone of this case. Justice for Emily does not mean injustice for you. Days after the trial, one of the jurors spoke with the local media to discuss how the unanimous verdict came about. It was not guilty, not guilty by all of us immediately. I knew from day one I thought he was not guilty, and the prosecutors never changed my mind. Not I didn't falter on how I felt, not for one minute. I just thought Matt Moore seemed very cooperative and wanted to be helpful. And he acted like he was very distraught over the, his wife disappearing. And that was the first thing that I thought right away that this wasn't, he wasn't putting on a show. He was truly wanting to help. I thought he was a nice guy that was totally manipulated and tricked. I just will never believe he, he killed his wife. 
we reached out to the producer of the three-part podcast series, which largely implicated Matthew Moore of Emily Noble's murder. We asked this individual if they would be interested in doing an interview with us. We wanted to give them the opportunity to present their side of the show's contribution to the so-called media circus surrounding the case that took place. We wanted to ask their opinion on one's right to a fair trial, the presumption of one's innocence, and if they felt specifically they may have played a role in potentially influencing an otherwise objectively uninformed public before the trial had even begun. They responded by saying they would speak to us about the American justice system, but not specifically about Matthew Moore. Given that our episode surrounds the not guilty verdict of Matthew Moore, they declined the interview. However, they did provide us with the following statement. The American justice system operated as it was designed to. The jury did not find that the prosecution met the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. A not guilty verdict does not equal innocence in the eyes of the court or anywhere else. A not guilty verdict means that the jury did not find the prosecution met the burden of proof. Only an exoneration would be a legal declaration of innocence. A statement we find absolutely correct and true and couldn't agree more with. Just because Matthew Moore was found not guilty does not definitively mean that he is innocent. It only means that he was adjudicated through the courts and the jury could not convict him based on the evidence provided at trial. We all know by now that one of the first things jurors are instructed to do, particularly in a homicide case, is to ignore any media coverage of the events. They're ordered not to consume any content regarding the trial so as to not waver from arriving at a just and fair verdict. But alas, jurors are people just like you and I. When they go back to their hotel rooms or speak to their friends in private at dinner, let's be honest, unless they are aggressively sequestered, some may inevitably discuss what they've heard in the news. And at the very least, they're watching those broadcasts and listening to those podcasts. The fact of the matter is, we're all impressionable. To varying degrees, we are all susceptible and have the ability to accept certain information as truth, even if at times it simply is not. The reason? Because we tend to take things at face value. After all, no one is perfect, and we are damn sure all flawed as human beings. Emily Noble was an artist, a photographer, and a lover of nature. She enjoyed swimming, jogging, and hiking, and was cherished by everyone who knew her. The legal complexities of this case should never overshadow the fact that she was a victim. But a victim of murder? Yes. According to her unchanged death certificate, she was the victim of a homicide. But Emily Noble was also a victim of a hard and tragic life. She experienced immense pain and strife. She was a woman who saw more turmoil in her 52 years than any one person ever should. And by all accounts, she picked herself up time and time again. When something terrible happens, immediately we look for someone to blame. We instinctively want to hold someone accountable. This is a visceral and very normal human reaction. But in the eyes of the law, we must rely on the evidence and the evidence alone. The point being, we're not interested in taking sides in this one. We're in the business of objective fact-finding, and the purpose of this episode 
is not to suggest that Matthew Moore is in any way an innocent man by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, he's lucky, fortunate that Diane Menashe was his defense attorney. Our intent was not only to present a case where a fair verdict was surprisingly reached, but also to show that volatile journalism and jumping emotionally to conclusions and one-sided reporting can and will dictate and sway the public's opinion in a very hazardous and destructive way. As producers of such content, we have to realize the power we all hold. We need to be careful not to strive and seek to only entertain, but also to inform factually and responsibly, above all else. A lot of where the issue lies here is when productions cover a case prematurely, before the facts are even made available. In this circumstance, just as the anonymous podcaster said, the judicial system did work the way it was designed to this time. But sadly, the truth in this case remains elusive. As tragic and unresolved as it may leave those directly and peripherally involved feeling, we simply cannot convict someone of a crime based on feeling alone. The accepted burden of proof in the U.S. legal system refers to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Because no matter how doubtful one is about an individual's guilt, the only reasonable outcome in the face of lacking evidence is acquittal. And that can be an irreversibly difficult pill to swallow if you've already made up your mind that someone is guilty of a crime. 